3: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about corpse confusion and murderous moderation. I'm your host for the evening, Nick Goroff, standing in for our dear friend Steve Taylor, and tonight, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly-lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of P.D. Williams and Christine Blackwicks are voice talents Paul J. McSorley, Melissa Medina, Heather Ordover, Lithia Fay, Jesse Cornett, and Eric Peabody. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the mind and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the light and turn on the dark. Our first tale of this evening is written by P.D. Williams and is performed by Paul J. McSorley and Melissa Exelberth. In it, We'll meet an elderly farm couple who've shared a wonderful life for over fifty years. A poignant and terrifying jelly puts a new twist on the phrase, till death do we part. And without further ado, I present to you, Jelly. Bertram couldn't be sure
2: how long Emmeline had been dead. She had been in the bathroom taking one of her late afternoon soaks. He hadn't heard a peep out of her since she had turned off the faucets over an hour ago. He didn't think much about it. After all, they were both in their early 70s, and as you got older, things naturally took longer. Bertram was kicked back in his time-worn recliner watching baseball. It was now well into the fourth inning when the thought hit him to check on her. Lord, what if she's fallen and knocked herself unconscious? He had sat through enough of those medical alert commercials to know that it was relatively easy to end up on the kitchen floor or, and this was when the disturbing mental picture took hold of him, a bathtub full of water. He got up, walked to the bathroom, and banged on the door. "'You okay in there?' She didn't answer, so he opened the unlocked door and stepped inside. Emmeline was sitting in the tub, her head tilted to the side. She appeared to be napping. Emmeline. Emmeline, honey? He inched closer to the tub. The knot in his stomach grew tighter as he reached on and pushed her shoulder. She slumped down to the waterline. He jumped back as if the tub had sent an electrical shock through him. Bertram's quaking hand felt her neck for a pulse but found none. He stared at her chest for any movement. It was still. Oh, lordy lord, Emmeline? Oh, Jesus, no. He backed out of the bathroom until he bumped into the wall in the hallway. He turned and staggered to the living room and dropped down onto the recliner. Bertram was shaky and confused. Once he collected and arranged his thoughts, he realized that the first thing he needed to do was contact the authorities. He shut off the TV, turned, lifted the receiver of the landline phone on the small table next to him and began dialing 911. Then the voice called from the bathroom.
4: Bertram, are you there?"
2: He froze, his fingers still hovering over the one button on the phone's receiver. He reminded himself there were no such things as ghosts. He dialed the one, then he heard the waters stirring, followed by the faint sound of feet sliding over the tile floor toward the bathroom door. In his mind's eye, Bertram watched the doorknob slowly turn and heard the telltale creak of the door hinges. The wet footsteps squished as they dragged down the hall toward the living room. Bertram laid the receiver on the table and stared straight ahead at the darkened TV screen. He could see his own reflection and the living room around him. His peripheral vision detected the form stepping out of the hall. He stayed focused on the TV mirror. He might lose what little sanity he had left if he looked directly at her. He panted as the body wrapped in a white bathrobe sauntered past him and sat down in the chair next to him.
4: Bertram, I feel funny, she said. I hope I didn't have a stroke or something.
2: Emmeline looked over to him.
4: Bertram, what's wrong with you? Look at me when I'm a-talking to you.
2: Bertram worked up enough courage to swivel his head toward her like a wobbly animatronic. When he saw that his wife was very much alive and not some revenant haunting him, his body relaxed and his heart rate returned to near normal. "'Baby?' he asked with more relief than fear. "'God of Moses, darling. I thought you'd gone and died in the bathtub.'
4: "'Died in the bathtub? What's gotten into you, you old fool?'
2: She smiled and snickered at him. "'You was in the tub for a while, so I went check on you. You weren't breathing or moving or nothing. When I touched you, you slumped over like a loose fence post. Are you sure you're all right?'
4: Yes, Bertram, I think I might remember dying. I probably just fainted. Them new blood pressure pills Doc Melbourne has me on has been giving me the woozies. I'll call him tomorrow and get that straightened out.
2: She shot a quick glance at the antique clock on the mantel and said,
4: Good gracious, would you look at the time? Have you eaten anything?
2: Well, of course, Emmeline. The first thing I thought of when I figured you was dead was to go into the kitchen and stuff my pie hole.
4: Oh, Bertram.
2: She mewed through one of the loving smiles he always found endearing.
4: You must be starved. I'll whip you up some fried cubed steak and mashed potatoes.
2: Ain't you hungry too? You know how much dying can wear a body out.
4: Ha ha, ain't you a riot. You know, for some reason, I ain't hungry.
2: Well, how about you get on to bed and rest yourself then? I've got more of a hankering for a peanut butter and nanner sandwich
4: all right then i am feeling pretty run down i'll see you in the morning
2: i sure hope so emmeline got up from her chair stood over him and kissed him on top of his balding head before heading off to bed sweet jesus how her lips are cold a good half hour before even god himself was set to awaken the rooster crowed bertram sat up in bed rubbed his eyes and swung his legs over the side He drew in the familiar fragrance wafting in from the kitchen. Bertram loved the smell of freshly brewed coffee and bacon in the morning. He threw on some fresh overalls and made a beeline to his breakfast. He leaned over the stove in the kitchen and sniffed the frying pans that created what he liked to think of as the morning miracle. He poured himself a mug of hot black coffee and sat down at the small table by the kitchen window where he was greeted by the glorious sight of one of Emmeline's life-altering breakfasts. He was about to place the napkin in his lap when it dawned on him that Emmeline wasn't buzzing around the way she typically did. His stomach lurched at the thought that she may have passed out again. Hey, honey, where are you at?
4: I'm down here.
2: Emmeline hollered from the root cellar where she stored her delicious homemade jellies. Soon the cellar's two heavy doors slammed shut. Bertram heard her grunting as she climbed up the three stairs of the side porch. Darling, are you okay? Do you need some help?
4: "'No, I'm good. Just needed to grab a fresh jar of jelly,'
2: Emmeline replied. Bertram started loading up his plate with scrambled eggs. He heard the squeal of the long spring on the screen door stretching. "'Come on, old woman, or I'll start the blessing without you!' Emmeline scooted past him as he saturated his eggs with Tabasco sauce. He was stretching for the bacon just as she was sitting down. She reached across the table and placed the jelly at the center." next to the biscuits covered bowl. The jar was her strawberry blend. Bertram read the personalized note on the label affixed to the front. Strap and strawberry, main ingredient, love. He smiled as if he were reading the sentiment for the first time.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs
1: And you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel.
5: Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today.
4: You can do this when you Angie that. I don't know what's up with me this morning. My joints feel so stiff.
2: Amaline complained. Oh now, Emmeline, you know neither of us is exactly a spring chick. Bertram looked at her. She had dark circles under her slightly milky eyes. Purple veins crisscrossed her upper torso.
4: Bertram, what is it? Are you alright? You look like you've seen a ghost.
2: Bertram swallowed hard. Emmeline, baby, have you looked in a mirror?
4: No, I just threw on my dress and got about my business. I didn't have the energy to go comb my hair or brush my teeth. Besides, who's there to try and impress way out here anyways? Speaking of teeth, my jaw feels tight. It's making it hard to talk. Do you think I might've gotten a tick bite? Those things can cause all kinds of bad symptoms.
2: Bertram didn't feel like eating anymore. I think we ought to get you in the truck and go to the ER over in Campbell.
4: That's nearly an hour from here. Just let me see if I can stomach some food. Then I'll go take some aspirin and lie down. I'll be all right. Here,
2: let me see if you got a fever first. Bertram felt her forehead. He snatched his hand back.
4: Bertram, what is it? Do I have a temperature or not?
2: Sweetie, you don't have no temperature at all. You're colder than an Eskimo's nose. Are you sure you don't want me to rush you to the hospital in Campbell? There's no telling what you might have caught.
4: No, I'm too tired to even walk out to the truck. Just help me get back to bed. I don't think I can hold anything down after all. We'll see how I feel later.
2: All right, if you're sure. Bertram took her arm. He nearly yelped. It felt as if her arm had turned into an unyielding rubber. When he finally got her to the bedroom, he began unbuttoning the back of her dress. He noticed it was damp and her skin had a slight sheen to it. After he lowered her onto the bed, he covered her up and kissed her frigid forehead before heading to the living room to give all of this a good think. Throughout the morning and early afternoon, Bertram checked on her four times. Each time she was sleeping, worn out by questions and concerns, he nodded off in the recliner. A while later, he awoke with a start and saw the early evening's faint shadows beginning to take shape on the living room's wall. He had drifted off earlier in the afternoon, which meant Emmeline hadn't been checked on for hours. Bertram gave a slight grunt as he hauled himself up and out of his chair. He was just beginning to get acclimated to alertness when he heard a gurgling voice cry out from the back bedroom.
4: Bertram!
2: Her voice sounded like it was underwater. Bertram was running down the hall when the odd smell hit him. It was like rotten fruit and spoiled meat. He charged through the bedroom door, flipped on the light switch, and blocked his howl with his palm.
4: Bertram,
2: she asked,
4: do I look odd to you? I feel different from this morning. What do you think's going on?
2: Bertram had no response for the waxy corpse sitting on the edge of the bed. Then his attention shifted to the stomach churning stench emanating from the thick pus oozing from the bopping blisters covering her reddish body.
4: I feel sick. Will you help get me to the bathroom?
2: Bertram stood there, gawking at her. He didn't know if he should run screaming from the house or call an ambulance.
4: Bertram, help me,
2: she pleaded. He walked to the bed. Emmeline held up a waterlogged arm, and Bertram grimaced as he took hold of it. He began lifting her up to a standing position and felt the top layer of her skin slip a little. His repulsion made him pause.
4: Bertram, get me to the toilet.
2: It was enough to snap him back. After helping Emmeline up, he stepped back a bit, but held his arms out to catch her if she fell, though he dreaded having to touch her again. Once he had directed her into the bathroom, she shuffled toward the toilet. She bent forward slightly and vomited up copious amounts of blackish blood and small, chunky pieces. Feeling his own gorge rising, Bertram said, I'm so sorry, as he dashed from the bathroom and out to the side porch, where he did some puking of his own. As he was finishing, it gradually dawned on him that he had left his ailing wife alone in the bathroom dealing with her own fear and discomfort. Wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, he composed himself as best he could and ventured back inside. The only thing worse than Emmeline's hideous appearance was the horrendous smell of decaying flesh that now permeated the back of the house. He grabbed a handkerchief from a pocket in his overalls and covered his nose and mouth. Emmeline, where are you sugar?
4: bathroom,
2: the croaking voice replied. She was hunched over the porcelain sink, her darkened hands gripping the sides.
4: Oh, Bertram,
2: she whispered. Bertram approached the sink. He couldn't see Emmeline's face. Her oily hair had fallen forward over her brow. Bloody teeth clogged the drain. I think we might be looking at more than some tick bite or fainting spell. The conclusion he was coming to unleashed a bevy of goosebumps all over his body. She wasn't merely ill. She was a withering corpse. Bertram had seen enough dead farm animals. Emmeline was just as gone as they had been. He had no idea what to do, think, or say. Then the small crumb of rationality told him that the first thing he needed to do was become more practical. Crying in confusion would not help. He could no longer think of Emmeline as his beloved high school sweetheart and wife of over 50 years. She was now a body he had to deal with. His first course of action was to get her out of the house. Emmeline, sweetness, let's get you on the porch. I think we both could use some fresh air. She remained still at first and then made four small turns to her left until she was facing the bathroom doorway. You want me to help you? Bertram asked. He was relieved when she didn't answer. Once she made it to the porch, Emmeline managed to bend her knees enough to lower herself down onto one of the rocking chairs. Bertram attempted to conceal the look of disgust on his face about her joints loud cracking as she sat down. Foamy blood leaked from her mouth and nose. They say there's dignity in death, Bertram thought, but there ain't nothing dignified about my wife right now. He felt the need to cover her wretched body with something. Sugar, would you like a blanket? Emmeline nodded ever so slightly, her neck making the cringe-worthy cracking sound again. Bertram pulled in a deep breath, holding on to it for as long as possible. He jogged to the bedroom closet for the blanket. Once he was back outside, he tenderly wrapped the blanket around her and sat in the other rocking chair. Neither said a word. They stared out across the yard at the fading springtime sun as it slid softly and colorfully behind the tree line. Bertram rocked back and forth. He tried desperately to direct his mind toward any other place but the porch he was sharing with a dead woman. Bertram let his gaze wash over the front property, corralled by a long stretch of wire fencing. He was rapt as he took notice of the straight rows of neatly planted corn. They reminded him of a battalion of soldiers standing at attention. God, how I love the country life. It surely does agree with me. But the merciful distraction dissipated as his thoughts circled back to Emmeline. He recalled fondly the acreage portion that she had claimed, the magical place that ran along the north side of the house that gave the fruit bushes their first breath of glorious life. She used the berries she grew to create her wondrous and delectable delights. His lips trembled as he remembered the unique labels she made for each jar. She'd give each flavor a catchy name, like Big Bad Blueberry, Betcha Like'em Blackberry, or Really Red Raspberry. And just as she had done on the label for the strawberry jelly she had served at breakfast, she always finished out the stickers with the affectionate phrase, main ingredient, love. As the hours wore on, Emmeline's wet breathing slowed. Her once bold eyes grew dull and distant. Despite his effort to stay awake with her, Bertram eventually fell into a deep and uneasy sleep. He was so drained that he slept past the rooster for one of the very few times in his adult life. He was awakened by a loud buzzing. Emmeline was still gazing well past nowhere. Her eyes had receded deep into their sockets. The buzzing that Bertram heard was the numerous flying insects rushing in and out of her open mouth, invading her nose and ears. Her greenish body had bloated. It looked as though her stomach was set to burst. Due to the grotesque swelling, her blanket had slipped off. For Emmeline's sake, Bertram tried to remain stoic. It would be cruel to let her witness her husband's revulsion. His disordered mind made it difficult for him to decide on what he should do for his wife at this awful moment. He did know that he would never leave her with the relentless flies and their maggots. More importantly, he would never allow anyone else to see her in her current ghastly state. The authorities be damned.
4: I'm fading, Bur,
2: She mumbled. What can I do, darling? Tell me what I can do for you. She struggled mightily to make herself understood.
4: Put me back in the tub, please. Uh, let me try and wash this mess off of me.
2: It was hard for Bertram to watch the filthy insects pushed out of her mouth as she spoke. It seemed evil and profane, and it brought about a wave of anger. "'I'll go get the bath ready,' he said. "'I'll be back in a jiffy.' When he returned to the porch, he had his handkerchief tied around the lower half of his face. Then he placed one arm under Emmeline's knees, now stiff with rigor mortis, and the other across her shifting shoulder blades, and carried her to the bathroom." The muscles in his lower back strained as he placed her down into the water's warm comfort. He stood up straight to loosen his back muscles and noticed that his arms were sticky and stained. Do you want me to help wash you off?
4: No, just leave me.
2: Bertram shuddered as he realized that this was likely the last time he would ever hear his wife's voice. Call if you need anything. He went back out to the front porch to clear his head and allow the tears to purge his heart. He waited there for a very long time, but Emmeline still hadn't called for him. When he couldn't take the silence and worry any longer, he recovered his mouth and nose with his handkerchief and returned to the bathroom. Emmeline was slumped over, just as she had been the first time he found her. Her skin was turning black, and there was a slimy film on the surface of the water. Worse yet, her body was beginning to liquefy. The odor that rippled through his mask was the worst by far. Bertram opened a window and then bolted back outside to wretch. Lord, please help me. What in the world am I going to do? He shouted, but heaven was silent. Should he now call the authorities? And if he did, what would he tell them? What might they make of his wife's decomposed body? Would they think him a ghoul and lock him away? There was going to be an investigation and many questions he couldn't possibly answer. Bertram needed a place to think. He walked around to the side of the house and stood near Emmeline's garden where her prized crop flourished. He paced anxiously, frazzled and useless, hoping for an idea. Then he abruptly stopped. As Bertram gazed upon the columns of ripened berries, an inexplicable feeling of calmness enveloped him. The garden's peacefulness brought clarity allowing him to ponder a few simple ideas rather than trudge through a complicated maze of elaborate plans. The decision he made felt not so much correct as it did proper. For Bertram, this was now a sacred place of remembrance, a place where a woman's love nurtured the rich brown earth that had yielded so much sweetness and beauty. Now he knew what in the world he was gonna do. He let her sit in the tub for over a week, so nature could finish the job it had screwed up before. Then he dug a hole up by her garden and began pouring her remains into it. When he got down to the last of it, Bertram picked up the small jar he had brought with him and filled it. He screwed on the two-piece metal lid, took a pen from one of his overalls' chest pockets, and scribbled some words on the blank label. Bertram carried the jar down to its final resting place. There it would serve as a small monument to a love that would continue far beyond its fifty-plus years of earthly existence. He said a few words of prayer, then solemnly ascended the stairs of the root cellar. He lowered its doors as if they were the lid of a coffin. There in the darkness, on a row of tall racks, sat a jar of dark jelly. Written on the white label were the words, Amazing Emmeline. Main ingredient? Love.
3: I hope you enjoyed Jelly, as written by P.T. Williams and voiced by Paul J. McSorley and Melissa Exelberth. You can read more from P.D. Williams throughout our YouTube channel and podcast episodes, as well as on his author profile with us at creepypastastories.com. Just search for Williams in the search bar. That's W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S to find more of his terrifying tales, and ways to follow him on social media. Voice actor Paul J. McSorley's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary Podcast. You can also keep up with him weekly on his show, Fear from the Heartland, Capture the Magic, or the Madness, from the very beginning, and check out his show today you'll be glad that you did. And after you drop by, don't forget to let him know you heard him here on the show. Voice actress Melissa Axelberth's vocal talents can also be found right here on our very own YouTube channel, as well as on her website, MelissaExelberth.com. Our second tale of the evening is written by Christine Blackwicks and performed by Melissa Medina, Heather Ordover, Lithia Fay, Jesse Cornett, and Eric Peabody. In it, we'll meet a woman cleaning out her grandmother's house who finds a pan, and with it, sudden culinary expertise, much to her friends and family's delight. That is, until she feeds them to death. Now, without further ado, I present to you The Transfiguration of Consumption.
5: When she first brought home the iron skillet, no one questioned her sudden culinary skills, except for maybe her mother.
1: Honestly, Katrina, I don't understand what's gotten into you. I've never seen you express one whit of interest in food. It was also her mother who commented on her weight. Honestly, Katrina, with all these fancy meals you effortlessly whip up, I don't know how you stay so skinny. Do I need to worry about an eating disorder? She patted her stomach. I swear... These extra five pounds are all on you. And her mother, who months later lamented, Honestly, Katrina, you look downright skeletal. It's like your weight is sloughing off on me. Frankly, she paused, lowering her voice. It's like you are plumping us up like chickens. Maybe consider lightening the feed? She winked. In the meantime, be a dear and warm us up a little of that bourguignon from last night. Katrina stared down at the overly
5: rouged cheeks. Her mother was too still to be sleeping. This coffin, the third she'd bowed over in as many months. Her eyes were too numb for tears. Her heart was too hollowed out for pain. The cathedral doors opened, liberating a breeze that whispered against her cheek. Her
1: mother's voice caressed. Honestly, Katrina, I think you fed me to death six months earlier.
5: When her grandmother died, it fell to Katrina to clear out her house so it could be put up for sale. With her part-time job as a waitress and full-time job as an aspiring illustrator, everyone in her family assumed she had the free time to make it happen. It was a rainy Tuesday afternoon, and the closets under the eaves smelled like cedar and wet leaves. Her back ached from ducking around tight spaces, and her nose ran from insects' dust and crumbling carcasses. Rubbing her back, she scooted out of the closet and fell on the nearest twin bed. Kat cocked her head as she studied her progress. As a sole worker in this establishment, she determined that anything deemed worthy of selling was her profit to keep. An assortment of personal items caught her fancy. Her favorite is a paperback book of photographs of women from the 60s fishing topless, a gag for her brother's stocking come Christmas. The sky deepened as she took load after load down the narrow staircase, frequently knocking her knuckles against the walls as she navigated the precarious incline. She forced herself to do one last sweep to make sure she hadn't missed anything. Flashlight in hand, she commenced an inspection of the upstairs attic room. The temperature had dropped and she shivered. Although she'd never admit it to her siblings, Kat always felt a bit creeped out by the closets with their gaping orifices open on either side of the twin beds. The two halves of a mouth are about to close and swallow as inhabitants. Without her grandmother's presence, the house felt starved. Kat entered the room with a sigh of determination, flipping a switch that didn't light. She stomped over to the first closet, shining her beam. Empty. Kat pushed the tapestry of the other closet aside, mind contemplating takeout options. A patch of shadow glimmered when she swept the light along the dark, recessed corner. Frowning, she scurried under the flap to take a closer look. She crouched down. The light stuttered off an object she'd missed. She crawled to the spot, positioning the flashlight to shine into the corner. Reaching out, she touched cool metal. She wrapped her hands around the outstretched length and tugged. It clanged against the boards as it bounced over to her. The heft, too much for one arm, had her dragging it while she collected her flashlight and fell back onto the room's carpet. She took a breath, studying the object on her lap. A cast-iron skillet. Light from her torch absorbed into the flat, black surface and reflected back a kaleidoscope of color. When she turned over the skillet, property of KOOC appeared stamped on the metal. Hunger nod. An odd name. She looked forward to looking it up on the internet when she got home. Could she cook tonight? Her mouth watered as her mind rifled through various concoctions. Then she laughed, remembering the failed romantic dinner she'd burned for her ex. She cradled the cold metal to her chest. An idea was forming around a simple grilled cheese. Her belly gurgled and she hauled her find down the stairs. As she locked up, she planned her list for the store. When she got home, she knocked on Barry's door. He lived a couple of units over.
3: Whoa, this is
5: a
2: surprise, he grinned.
5: I'm making dinner, you interested? His smile
2: deepened. Kit Kat, I've never known you to cook. Is this a euphemism for something more nefarious? Kat
5: rolled her eyes. <laughs> Maybe for lucky, but I'm serious about the food. You in?
2: How can I refuse?
5: He ran a hand down his thick braid.
2: What can I bring to drink?
5: At the deli, she picked up a loaf of uncut multigrain bread, blue cheese, smoked uncured bacon, beefsteak tomato, basil, and a sweet onion she planned on caramelizing in honey and butter. You wouldn't have a pale ale or IPA?
2: Why, you are full of surprises this evening. I'll see what I can do and be right over.
5: Cat became enchanted with the thrill of something new, like a mysterious aubergine door or a persimmon rose to birth a fairy princess. Elements of spice, herb, and an ingredient called to her. Rufescent threads of saffron, pearlescent sheets of spring onion, or the transfiguration of grey meat to bronzed perfection lured her like a sailor to the sea. She started with easy meals, like exotic scrambles, but soon found herself crafting soups and complex sauces. With increasing frequency, her table was full of friends eager to share her creations. Barry was the first to offer up his belly as an official taste tester, but he certainly wasn't the only one. Her mind processed ingredients, diet preferences, and allergies with the efficiency of a calculator computing algebraic equations. She conspired with three different bakers, knew a local butcher by name, and became friends with the owner of her favorite farmer's market stalls. All found their way to her table. Katrina worked in a frenzy, painting, cooking, and hosting, so much so that weight started to melt off her frame regardless of how decadent her meals were. While she didn't obsess over her weight, her mother did enough of that for both of them, she dreaded the endless discussions that weight loss inevitably curried. She found herself digging through her closet for items that hadn't fit in years. One night, as Kat fell into her nest of a bed in that delicious in-between place before falling asleep, she concocted a muffin recipe. A couple of her coworkers from the restaurant had been over for a meal and bragged her cooking rival Damien's, the head chef at their five-star establishment. Ever since she'd heard the rumors, he'd been harassing her to bring something. The problem was her real inspiration revolved around things that could be cooked with the black pan. Yet a breakfast muffin evoking the seasons percolated as she fell asleep. Dissipating into an endless abyss of night, she floated in darkness without time until sweat bathed. She awoke. She stumbled into the kitchen to make coffee and discovered a strange item sitting on top of her stove. A muffin tin. The shade was so dark it sucked the sunlight from the room. She ran her fingers around the smooth, opalescent surface. Lifting it took two hands, and she read the same strange imprint on the bottom. Property of K.O.O.C. Upon bringing the frying pan home, she searched briefly on her computer, but couldn't trace any company information about the brand name. She'd lost interest. Now though, somehow, she'd inherited a companion piece. Probably a gift from Barry. He had a key to her place and the wherewithal in both time and resources to find other pieces from the set. She grinned and threw on her coat and shoes, eager to rush to the store. Her seasons of change muffin wouldn't make itself. When she'd mentioned to Jenna that she was bringing a treat for Damien, she hadn't expected people who weren't on shift to show up. Topiary animals crawled up the walls, trailing tails of ivy, Branches intertwined overhead, concealing tiny spotlights illuminating each table while leaving the surrounding space in shadow. The decor was crafted to create the illusion of picnicking in a forest. The intimate space only had room for 30 guests, and it felt like she had an audience. You all aren't here because of me, are you? I certainly didn't bring enough to feed the horde of you. Jenna stepped forward. We can't wait to witness Damien's reaction. Dying to see what you brought. Damien stood in the open doorway leading to the kitchen. His pristine chef whites are crisp and starched.
2: Am I smelling something for me?
5: He waved her forward.
2: I don't have all day.
5: Kat sat her bag down on a verdant velvet settee and carried her basket over to him. She peeled off the kitchen towel, revealing the still-warm muffins. The crown was slightly pink, enhanced with a speckled blush glaze. I think it's best to take a bite incorporating the top of the muffin to the very bottom." The room fell silent as Damien picked one up, inhaling deeply. He opened his mouth wide and took a bite. His eyes closed. Cat laughed. I know, right?
2: What is this?
5: Damien asked after he swallowed. Oh, an idea I had before I fell asleep last night. I wanted all four seasons in one solitary bite.
2: It starts with summer? A strawberry basil glaze?
5: He asked. Yes, and I used almond flour and paste to make the first half of the base to illustrate the nutty warmth of fall. And? He continued for her.
2: The traditional bite of sour apple pieces rolled in cinnamon represents winter in the center.
5: Followed by coconut flour infused with rhubarb to symbolize spring. He appraised her.
2: I have to have the recipe. Did you use a particular pan?
5: You have no idea how particular she thought as she remembered the mysterious delivery left on her counter. I did.
2: Any chance I could borrow it for our Mother's Day brunch? These would be a highlight.
5: Kat flushed with pleasure at the compliment. Sure, but I want my name on the menu and a table for me and my mom. Done. He moved to go, but turned back to gently pry the basket from her arm before making his escape back into his lair. They sat in a window seat framed in fresh flowers, her mother elegant in pearls and a cream sheath. Cat observed her closely as she bit into the muffin. For a brief moment, her mother's gold-flecked eyes widened. Cat couldn't wait any longer. And?
1: Magical. Her mother licked her lips. It's as if I traveled the globe in one bite. Damien's quite the catch. Have you considered dating him? (sighs) Damien didn't come up with the recipe. I did,
5: Kat pointed at the menu. Look, I even have a chef credit to prove it. She ground her teeth to keep a neutral expression on her face. Honestly, Katrina, you're telling me you're a chef now? What happened to illustrating? Her mom smiled as she said it, but there was an undercurrent of mirth below her words. I'm still an artist, only my subject matter has metamorphosed. Kat willed her eyes not to roll. Why am I not surprised? Her mother kept picking at the pastry, tearing bits and eating them. So, what is it now? Portraits of food. You should come over and I'll show you. Kat wished her mother would join her for a meal and look at her work.
1: Her mother gazed at her candidly. Katrina, should I be concerned about your fixation on food when you look skinnier than I've seen you in quite some time? Are you eating? Obviously, Mom. I couldn't create recipes without tasting them.
5: I think I finally found my
1: passion. I'm glad to hear that. She glanced down at her plate, the muffin gone. Huh, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. What has gotten into me? You came up with that? Kat grinned. Yes, and it's all thanks to Grandma's skillet. Her mother's eyes narrowed. Your grandmother wasn't known for her cooking skills.
5: Huh, well maybe it was a family heirloom. It's definitely old. I found it hidden away in the back of a closet. Hmm. Her mom's considering stare smoothed into a smirk. When can I be invited over for dinner? Over the months Kat's inspiration grew. She would have her first art exhibition in a small but well-respected gallery. One of her friends brought an acquaintance who worked at an art gallery and insisted on showing her work to his boss. Damien hoarded the baking pan, always making excuses as to why he couldn't return it. He incorporated muffins, cupcakes, and popovers into his daily mix of menu offerings. Her life flowed like a movie, and if she was a little tired each morning from being consumed by carmine ribbons of fire, it was the price of an overly imaginative mind. Now her mom was a frequent visitor and often stayed late helping to clean up. Their relationship grew in the way she always yearned. Everything in her world was perfect until Josie came to town. Banging on her door brought Kat out of a fugue state. She'd been trying to mix the right intensity of indigo for the garlic spear she was painting.
1: I'm coming,
5: she yelled. It sounded like someone had brought a battering ram Kat wiped paint on her pants before grasping the handle. On the other side stood Josie. They both stared at each other for a full minute before she spoke.
6: Jesus Christ, Kat, are you on a new diet?
5: Josie, uh, this is unexpected. Her ex traveled for work, enough that it had impacted their relationship and after two years of dating, they broke it off. Josie reached out and touched her collarbone. Seriously, Kat? It looks like you're going for heroin chic. She tamped down the warmth that trickled from that touch. Kat pulled back. I'm I'm fine. I'm only
6: in town for a few days. May I come in?
5: Kat opened the door wider and gestured for her to enter. Josie stood in the middle of the room, looking at the paintings stacked against the wall.
6: What happened to your furniture?
5: I moved it. I needed the space. I can see that. Josie frowned her perk nose twitching in a way that made Kat always think of soft, fluffy rabbits.
6: I stopped by the restaurant last night. I'd read about Damien's pastries in the paper. It didn't sound like his style, so naturally I had to see for myself. The crab center with the aioli glaze was enough to make me come. Jenna told me it was you who got him started. Me, or
5: possibly one of the pans I found when cleaning out my grandma's house.
6: I was sorry to hear she passed.
5: Yeah, me too. Can I offer you something to drink? Kat chose to speak her mind once they'd settled into the table, both with infused iced teas of nectarine and fresh mint. So, what brings you by? It hurt to see Josie and know she wasn't hers anymore.
6: After talking to Jenna last night, it seemed like a lot has changed. I tried calling, but...
5: Kat chuckled. Yeah, I'm constantly misplacing my phone, and I've turned off the ringer, so I'm not interrupted during a creative spell. A key sounded in the lock, and they both jumped. The door opened, and Barry strolled in, arms full of groceries. Cat went to help him. Barry glanced from Cat to Josie.
3: Sorry, I wasn't aware you had company. I didn't want to
5: disturb your work. He tilted his head. Josie. Hey, Barry. Josie's tone cooled.
2: I'll leave you to it then. Dinner at 8 tonight?
5: Perfect. Kat could cut the awkward tension in the room with her palette knife. Thanks for shopping for me today. She gave him a peck on the cheek to annoy Josie. He shot the peace sign to Josie before heading out.
6: What is going on here?
5: Josie demanded. What do you mean? You don't get to walk out of my life and then walk back in and be all judgmental.
6: Kat, are you blind? The man looks morbidly ill. Kat shook her head in confusion. You should be buying him groceries, not the other way around. Is he sick? Taking too many drugs? You know he's in recovery. Are you sure
5: about that? Of course I'm sure. He's my friend. I see him every day. He helps me with dinner. He's been present in my life, unlike some people. Josie studied Kat.
6: Okay, I guess I deserved that. But this has been hard on me too.
5: She reached out her hand to touch the tips of Kat's fingers. Kat wanted to relent, take Josie in her arms and show her what she'd been up to and how she'd spent the time after their breakup. But she wasn't sure her heart could take the rejection. Are you doing anything tonight? Why don't you come over? Get here early and you can help me prep. Say six? I've got to finish this. I have an art exhibit coming up. She paused, indicating the giant vegetable before continuing. Josie's face lit up.
6: Oh, Kat, that's wonderful. I always knew you were batshit talented.
5: Their eyes locked, but Kat glanced away first and walked over to the door. So, tonight? Josie nodded. I can't wait. Kat watched Josie pace about the room. Throughout the dinner, Josie became increasingly antsy. Why couldn't she enjoy herself like everyone else? When Barry left, Josie practically slammed the door behind him. She took a deep breath and scrutinized Cat. What did you think of dinner? Cat asked. She made a seafood cassoulet with fresh mussels, clams, and Copper River salmon, which had been caught that morning. Josie walked to the table and pulled out a chair for Cat before taking a seat herself. Cat, we've got to talk. Okay, but you could just come right out and say you hated
6: the meal. Damn it, Cat. The meal was great, but you can't see what's going on right in front of you. What are you talking about? Not a single person at your table appeared healthy. Your mother was puffy with chub, which is a far cry from the char I know. Barry looks like he's close to turning sideways to waddle through your door, not to mention his skin is sickly and sallow. The only person who seemed remotely robust was the fisherman Barry invited, but he hasn't been coming to your soirees, has he? What does he have to do with anything? Why can't you be happy for me? Kat stood. Look around you. Something is seriously off. Since when do you cook like a Michelin chef? Everyone is gorging like mosquitoes ready to lay eggs. Your friends have put on weight, yet you can't keep any on. Don't you wonder about your sudden obsession with food? I think you should go. Cat. open your eyes. Something's not right. It's that pan. Isn't that what you said earlier? You found that pan and suddenly became inspired?
5: Seriously, Josie, leave. Anger seethed under the surface of her skin. How dare she try to ruin all Cat work to build? Josie stood, going to the coat rack for her purse. She turned suddenly and grabbed Cat's wrist.
6: If you don't believe me, can you promise to take Barry to a doctor? Get him checked out. Cat yanked her arm away. Since when do you care about Barry? Jesus, Cat, I don't, but obviously you do. Wake up to what's going on around you take a break from cooking with that stupid pan you're obsessed with. What if you are poisoning everyone around you? Have you bothered to research your magical pan at all?
5: If it's so bad, then why is the restaurant so popular? Why are my dinner parties so successful? Josie shook her head. I don't know, Kat, but maybe you should find out. Damien died first, a sudden cardiac arrest. When he collapsed, he was pulling her pan out of the oven. The skin melted off his face like butter before anyone realized he was down. His casket was closed. Unable to stomach stepping foot into his restaurant, Damien's sister hosted the wake at her home. Mira was his behind-the-scenes business manager. Cat had never met her. She found Mira sitting in her kitchen, head clutched between her palms. I'm so sorry about Damien. The words fell flat. Her grief was all-encompassing, but her expression of it felt as meaningless as sentiment written on toilet paper. Mira glanced up. You're Cat, right? Surprised, Cat nodded. Mira's vitriol hiss startled her. You're the one who started his ridiculous fixation. Cat sat back, face heating with embarrassment. Mira stared at Cat. Those damn baked goods he compulsively cooked in that ugly pan of yours. He couldn't stop talking about new recipes, concocting original flavors, always bringing his inventions to the house, obsessing about being the best and always sampling, nibbling, eating. She scowled at the table. Kat's eye rested on a family photo hanging on the wall. It looked like it had been taken about a year earlier from the kid's ages, revealing a much slimmer Mira. She pulled her sweater tight. A prickly chill cooled her. I don't know your plans for the restaurant. No. We'll have to close. That was Damien's dream. She trailed off as a tear trickled down her cheek. Before you sell anything off, I was hoping to grab my pan. Mira peered up in disbelief, and Kat rushed on. I'm not in a hurry or anything, but I I wouldn't want to lose it. It It was my grandmother's. Mira studied her for a long moment before responding. You're welcome to your devil pan. Cat began to fret when she hadn't seen Barry for a few days. She was picking up her mail when another neighbor told her about his ambulance ride. Cat hurried to the hospital. When she arrived in his room, she couldn't reconcile the figure on the bed with her Barry. His cinnamon skin was blotchy and pallid. The long raven hair, the pride and joy of his heritage hung in lank, greasy clumps. When he opened his eyes, rotten yolks were revealed. Cat became afraid.
3: Hey, kit Cat.
5: His voice was raspy, like it hadn't been used in months, not days. Perry, why didn't you call me? I, I would have been here in an instant. Cat put her hand over his, clasping it gently.
2: I didn't want to trouble (laughs) you.
5: He gasped a dry cough. What happened? A sad smile touched his lips.
2: Guess my hard living in the old days caught up with me.
5: But you're not old.
2: Apparently, pancreatic cancer isn't picky about your age.
5: Oh, Barry, no. Tears burst from her eyes.
2: Don't you worry. I'm going to beat this. I just need a little TLC. Maybe you could bring some consomme. That will fix me right up.
5: (laughs) Kat desperately wanted to believe him. She chopped, simmered, and poured all her love into the broth. But it didn't fix him up. Barry was dead within the week. After her mother's funeral, Kat gutted her paintings. She took a knife from her butcher block and stabbed at the swollen fruits and burgeoning vegetables. The air in the apartment became viscous with the rancid decay spilling from their seams, redolent of the sulfur from her nightmares. She snapped the wooden frames across her knees, utilizing a mallet when the bruises became too much. When she was calm enough to think, Kat moved to her computer. She couldn't shake Josie's words ricocheting through her head. Had she poisoned the people she loved? She needed to find a way to jettison the pans and stop this from happening to anyone else. At first, she thought she might be able to melt the metal, but the internet informed her that without a forge, it wasn't possible. She grabbed Barry's keys off her counter. She owned a vintage, bottle green Ford Thunderbird. His brother lived in another state and asked Kat to keep an eye on his things until he returned. She stopped at a hardware store to pick up a sledgehammer and work gloves on her drive. It took two trips because it it took two trips because of her weight. When she got into the car, she opted for a remote beach that Barry had introduced her to a few hours away. All through the trip, her gut raged and screamed with hunger. Everything from seared scallop coq au and an innovative take on Gâteau Saint-Henri assaulted her mind. She visualized Barry's unnatural eyes, her mother's unrecognizable face, and Damien's closed casket to keep herself from driving to the grocery store and heading back home. When she got to the beach, the waves blended with the sky and shore in one monotonous shade of gray. The wind blew, shoving against her as she hauled the pans out of the car to the dead logs scattered at the high tide line. It took some time to break down the baking instruments into shards she felt small enough to toss into the ocean. The brittle metal proved no match for her grief. Rain fell from the clouds, making the hammer and shards slick. She often missed her target. She had to sit down and rest several times, her arms burning with unaccustomed effort. As the sky darkened and the tide rose, her hunger finally abated. Piece by piece, she hurled the remains into the crashing sea, repeating the names of those she lost, promising never to forget. Afterwards, she slept Dreamlessly in the car, exhaustion pulling her down as surely as the tide sucked the skillet and muffin tin remains. Kat woke with surprise. She was amazed at how the sun brought out the blue green of the sea, the khaki of the sand, and the cerulean of the sky. Her hands itched for her paints, reminding her of the work she'd shredded at home in a flash. She considered the pieces hanging at the gallery, all the pieces sold. Her stomach grumbled. She frowned, losing the ephemeral thread of thought. Instead, the neon brilliance of the 24 hour drive-in chain down the road took its place. She started the car and drove off, the ocean in her rearview mirror. Nathan watched the dirt swirl as he kicked at the small shells littering the beach. His mom's boyfriend was okay. He didn't give him five bucks to buy something at Larry's gas and guzzle. However, knowing they were trying to get rid of him made him feel like he was being paid to leave, which tainted the fun of spending. He often wished he had a brother or sister to boss around. Heck, he'd even take being bossed if that was what it took not to be lonely. His converse left Prince in the wet sand, and he was about to turn around when something caught his eye. He saw an unusual black pebble sticking out of the sand. Squatting down, getting on his hands and knees, he dug around the object until he discovered it wasn't a rock at all. It was a toy soldier. Further along the shore, he spied little dark objects peppering the strand. He ran along the shoreline, collecting as many as he could. He pulled his red sweatshirt into a basket, using it to collect his find. When he could no longer outrun the waves, he wrapped the bundle tight against his chest he walked up the beach to the soft, dry sand where grizzled seagrass grew. Sitting on a slight slope, he studied his treasures. The obsidian figures were made of a heavy, dark metal that twinkled with different colors depending upon how he turned them in the sun. These were unlike the cheap, green soldiers his friends had. He boasted that both men and women posed not only with weapons, but like real people taking their leisure. Each soldier was intricately designed with fine details, like the creases around one man's eyes, or the delicate ash dangling from a half-smoked cigarette. None of them had the same face. If he squinted his eyes, he almost thought he could detect subtle movement. The bright joy of imagination filled him. The metal warmed his hands, and he knew he'd discovered something special, and by extension, he would be special too. He stood, filling his sweatshirt pocket with his cash, excited to show his friend Micah. He held a lone soldier, transfixed by the swirling eddies of color in his hand. Located on the bottom base, he found a small stamp, peering at the tiny type he read, Property of TNUH.
3: I hope you enjoyed The Transfiguration of Consumption, as written by Christine Blackwicks and performed by Melissa Medina, Heather Ordover, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights newcomer, Elithia Fay, Jesse Cornet, and Eric Peabody. Voice actress Melissa Medina's work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as her website, hearmelissa.com. That's H-E-A-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A dot com. Heather Ordover can be found on the amazing Craftlit podcast, as well as on our channel. That's C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T. All one word, folks. If you enjoyed Mr. Peabody's performance, you can hear more of him on the Chilling Tales YouTube channel, where he holds the second place championship title for 2019's Evil Idol competition, as well as recently becoming the new host of Horror Hill. You'll also find more of his work at his website, www.vikingguitar.com, and If you enjoyed Mr. Cornette's performance, you can hear more of him on the No Sleep Podcast, where you can hear his vocal performances as well as production. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close, but before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us tonight, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host for the evening, Nick Goroff, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week, when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark.
2: Chilling Tales for Dark Nights